what a treat today. My Aunt Carol is in town visiting, and I talked her into being on the podcast. And she tells stories, and we talk about my aunt and my grandparents, and we talk about gardening and teaching. She taught school for years and years. We talk about teaching school. We just talk about all kinds of stuff. And um, I love my family. I'm so proud of my family that I'm proud to share my Aunt Carol with you guys. Um Tried to get my dad to come in with her, but he was a no-go. I think he was a one-and-done. He was feeling really shy. So um, so that's okay. Aunt Carol and I ended up having a great conversation. Thank you for coming back every week. You can find my um, wife of the party at birdieboyproductions.com, B-E-R-T-Y-B-O-Y productions with an S.com. If you want to send me an email, you can go there and email me through the site. Yeah, so thanks for showing up every week, and I hope you enjoy this episode with me and my Aunt Carol. I sure did. I rode my bicycle past your window last night. I roller-skated to your door at daylight. It almost seems like you're avoiding me. I'm okay. I guess if you talk to how many kids? Twenty five. Well, I taught one hundred and twenty five a day. One hundred and twenty five kids a day. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you rotated. Mm-hmm. See, that's how five Ill- classes fit twenty five to sometimes twenty eight to the class. And that was middle school, elementary, elementary. Yeah, that's how my elementary school worked, and they don't do that anymore. They still do in our county. In fact, I went to a school. Um, I was tired of being at the school I was in because I didn't like the principal. And so I went to the school, first school I taught in, or the second school I taught in for just one year. And uh, they, I called the principal who used to teach with my teach with me at my at my school I was at the longest, and said, "I'm looking for a job. You have a science position open." She said, "We don't change classes, so we don't have anybody teaching science. But if you'll come to our school, we will start changing classes just so they can have you for a science teacher." So, for the five years I was up there, they. Um, Changed classes. That's and pretty I amazing. Science. Yeah. That's a huge compliment. They changed the whole way they ran their school. Yeah. Well, just the fifth grade. Just the fifth grade. Well, they may have done it in fourth, too, once we started changing classes. But, yeah, I always had 92-plus percentile on our test scores at the end of the year, even with my special ed kids included. So That's amazing. Because I did science experiments all day long. Yeah. What was your favorite experiment? Oh, <laughs> I guess um, anything to do with electricity. We had the little ball that they'd put their hands on. It'd make their hair stand out. Like <laughs> and uh, they learned to wire circuits. And uh, they learned the difference between parallel wiring and series wiring. And they could put the switches on there and just have a good time with electricity. That's cool. Yeah. And so you taught fifth grade science for five years? Mm-mm, I taught fifth grade science for about 
12, uh, 10 or 12 years and then sixth grade science for two years. But I also taught the science in the third grade because we didn't change classes. But all the teachers said, I'll teach your math if you'll teach my science. Ah, So we did it on our own. You traded. <laughs> I remember going to one of your classrooms when I was little and it had a tree house in the classroom. Oh, yeah. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, it was like had carpet all over it, uh-huh. wasn't it? Like a carpet tree house sort it, of? It was a wooden tree house, but it had a carpet on the upper level where the kids sat. They had taken the wall out between two classrooms, and there was this huge post in the cement post in the center that had the outlets on it. So we built the tree house around it, and then they could sit underneath with the tape players and listen to, to audio tapes of the books they were reading. And then they could go upstairs and sit up there and read their own books. So it was kind of fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. I love that treehouse. I thought it was really cool. Uh-huh. I liked changing classes. I remember being in first grade. I had Miss Wynn for English. And I went across the street to Miss, across the street, across the hall to Miss Sanders for math. And I went back and forth all day to mm-hmm. those two teachers. And when my kids were in elementary school, they had one teacher all day until fifth grade. And then fifth grade, they had one teacher for English and history maybe or social studies i guess and then one teacher for math and science and then no and for math and then another teacher for science i think it's a better way of mm-hmm. of teaching you um, don't get bored well and you can serve the children at their level that way if you have a mixed class you're talking about in elementary school having kids whose reading abilities range from pre-k I had a fifth grader already teach reading on high school level, uh-huh. and I was self-contained that year. And so I had kids in that fifth grade class who were still on a first and second grade reading level all the way up to him who taught had a reading level of high school. So I had to teach him as a single kid in a reading group. It's impossible. Well, it's possible, but it's just hard work because you've got to have something for those other kids to do while you're teaching one child. Right. It takes a lot of planning. Yep. I spent almost as many hours at school planning as I did teaching. Because I didn't crazy. go home till about 10 o'clock most nights when, after the girls got older. Yeah. I was there from 7 in the morning till about 10 at night, many days. So you could do it right. So I could do it right. Right. That's, that's the curse of our family, isn't it? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody who was willing to do a halfway job. Uh, I don't know anybody in our family willing to do a halfway job. Mm-hmm. It is a blessing and a curse. Absolutely. <laughs> because sometimes, man, you just go till you drop, but you can't stop till it's done right. That's right. Ethically, morally, structurally, Whatever it is, it needs to be done But I right. tell you, when you're teaching school and a kid comes back years later and, say, you know, they're in high school and they come back and said, I still remember when we did that experiment in your class. That's the reward. That's the payoff. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I feel that way about being a Girl Scout troop leader. I think that I, watching this group of girls from kindergarten all the way till ninth, 10th or 11th grade and now a, a, a freshman in college is so rewarding because you, if you do it right, they learn and grow and become closer. And that's the gift to me is to watch that. But I just don't think that I don't think we're normal in that. I think I, you may be right. I don't, I think we are a special breed, this Kemp breed, because, um, well, we're not entirely special. There are other people, obviously, who are similar to us, but, um, but yeah, I think it's a special little genetic makeup we have that all of us have that same kind of value system, I guess. Where, where do you think that came from? Well, I remember when we were little, 
Mama was up and already had breakfast on the table, and it was always a big pan of biscuits, at least two kinds of meat, scrambled eggs, and and uh, all of her homemade jellies. And she'd roust us out of bed, and we'd go and eat breakfast. And while we were getting ready for school, she was washing the dishes. I have no idea when the woman had time to take a shower or to uh, get her own clothes on, mm-hmm. but she was always dressed by the time we got up and get ready for school. And then she would go to work at 8 and work till 5, and she had a couple of ladies that she took to work because they didn't drive, and so she'd have to drop them by their houses. So she'd get home around 5.30, quarter to 6, and she would put something on the stove simmering to start supper and go out and work in her garden until do- until time to fi- to serve supper. And back then we ate around 7 at night. Daddy changed it later. He won't eat at 6 for some reason, mm. but all of our childhood we ate right at 7 o'clock, and she wouldn't let us wash dishes. She didn't like the way we washed dishes. Huh. So when we ate, we got up and left the table, and she washed the dishes. And um, then she got us ready for bed, and she was up that night probably getting stuff ready to fix the meals for the next day. So I don't have any idea what time she finally went to bed. Who knows? She never slept, but then she napped all day. She did. She, she was catnapped. <laughs> she catnapped Once all Once she day. retired from, from the uh, manufacturing plant where she worked, she would catnap in between but then she was raising chickens so she had to be up early in the morning and yep. and be up there quite often during the day but and daddy was the same way he would get up in the morning and first thing he would do at sunrise is go milk the cow mm-hmm. and of course when he brought that in mama had to take time to strain the milk and get it in the refrigerator so that was another job for her and and then after after he did that he would eat breakfast and get ready and he would hit his woodworking shop by 8 o'clock in the morning, and he would leave at 5 and come home. And same routine. He had to go to the barn and, and milk the cow and feed the cows and feed the pigs and whatever other animal happened to be around the farm. And then he would come in and have supper. And then that was his quiet time. He sat in that lounge chair mm-hmm. while Mama finished the dishes and we did homework and that sort of thing. But he... He didn't stir from that lounge chair once gun smoke came home at night. <laughs> it was over. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, what was the what was the sheriff's name in Gunsmoke? Matt Dillon. Um, Matt. Dillon. What was his real name? James Arness. Yes. Yeah, so our friends rented his house here. You know, my daddy got to mm-hmm. meet him. Yeah, he told me about that. He he still talks about that whenever anybody will listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> it was a special moment. I mean, I would imagine growing up with somebody you saw in your house every day or almost every day. Would be kind of crazy to meet them in real life. Yeah, he was really excited about it. He was very charming. And he said, "You know, he was just like a normal guy." Yeah. I said, "Well, Jimmy, he was an actor on TV, but he was a normal guy <laughs> when he went home. I'm sure." <laughs> yeah, he lived in the house that my friends rented was a very modest house in a very sweet neighborhood, and I think I think they'd had that house for many many years. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was where he raised their they raised their kids, and it's that kind of neighborhood. The house was in that kind of raise your kids kind of neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So they were lovely. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess I was told you have to do the right thing or, you know, those kind of things. But I think observation of behavior is the most important thing because I don't, that, that teaches you that kind of value system and ethics is that you watch the adults in your life behave mm-hmm. that way yeah and it makes you want to be that way too i never remember mom and daddy giving us any lectures about what's right and what's wrong to do mm. but i remember one time daddy 
had a neighbor whose chicken house got hit when a tornado came through and the lights went out. And of course, the chickens pile up when it's dark and they'll smother each other. Mm. And he had to have some lights. So daddy took his tractor down there and he ran a generator off the tractor. And the guy used the generator all night to keep his chickens alive. And when he brought it back the next day, he said, well, your generator burned up early this morning and he never offered to replace it or help pay for a new one. And daddy never said a word. He just went and bought a new generator. And, and I said, daddy, you know, he's the one who tore it up. And he said, care, we don't know how worn out it was when he borrowed it. Mm-hmm. And I, you have to be a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I believe that their funerals were testimony to what good neighbors oh, good they were. Lord. <laughs> Talk about standing room only. Pop's funeral went on forever. I think it was like 1,500 people came. I don't remember. There were over 600 who went to the funeral home, and it was 13, 14 degrees that night, and they stood outside in a line. They finally did a conga line inside to get everybody inside the funeral home. But That's right. It was It was very cold because the night he died, it was 13, which was very unusual for Bowden, Georgia. Yes. Yes, I do remember it was really cold. I mean, we were inside the whole time, but now that you say it, it was freezing. Yeah, it was December. Um. And so many people came through the line, young men. Daddy used to hire a lot of high school boys to work for him in his pallet shop. And that's when a lot of them would say, your daddy's the one who taught me the value of work, of hard work. Wow. Because, you know, he had rules and you followed those rules and you worked hard when you were there. You didn't goof off. But a lot of them came through and said, I don't know how many came through and said to me, your daddy is the one who learned me, who, who learned me, who taught me. <laughs> how to be a good worker That's and they looked at the sign on the wall where it said where it said robert haskell and in quotes pop kemp uh-huh. they all said i never knew his real name because uh, everybody in town called him granny and pop yes everybody did everybody. right if everybody. you said granny anywhere in bowden they would know you were talking about willamay kemp <laughs> yes it's true that's very true everybody i know my kids ask me if i want to be called granny and i don't think so I think that's a standalone. I could never. You can't live up to that. <laughs> no, ma'am. I don't want to. That's my granny. I don't mm-hmm. want to be that. That's mm-hmm. mine. She belongs to me. So I don't want her name. Thank I don't you. know when when Stephanie was first, when Stephanie being the first one was the one who determined that granny was her name. Uh-huh. And I don't know if Stephanie came up with this or if her mother and daddy just said, here's granny. But. Granny never really did like the word, the name Granny. She didn't? She said, that's so old-fashioned. It makes me sound like an old, old woman. <laughs> <laughs> but it fit her it so well. It did fit well. her because she was a granny to everybody. She was. And Granny, actually, in England, is a, is that's what you want to be called, right? That's like that. the rich people call their uh, grandmother's Granny over across the pond. Yeah. So maybe we should have told her that. <laughs> Before she oh, she went. Well, it wouldn't matter to her because she would never go across that pond. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. No airplanes for her. When I brought her out here one time, we were down at the beach, Zuma Beach, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And she was walking about 20 or 30 yards from the water's edge, uh, walking along with the, with the uh, pigeons or whatever birds were down there. Seagulls, probably. Probably. And I said, Granny, come down here and just put your foot in the water and uh that way you can tell everybody that you've been in the Pacific Ocean. And she said, I'm not coming down there. I get down there, a big old wave will come in there and wash me out to sea and drown me. <laughs> well, she couldn't swim. She couldn't swim a lick. Daddy teased her when they were dating. She was in a boat with him, a fishing boat. And he teased her and started rocking the boat. And Uh-oh. he knew she couldn't swim. And 
and he loved to tease people, and he didn't realize how mean he was being to her. And she never stepped foot in a boat again until she was in her 60s, and that's when she went on the pontoon boat to the 4th of July mm-hmm. fireworks at the lake. So it had been 60, at least 60 years probably since she, she'd been in a boat. Uh, would you say that that is an example of how stubborn she was? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> she was so stubborn. I called her one night and I said, Mom, I'm going to come down there in the morning and help you hoe your okra because the weeds were growing up in it. And I said, what time are you going to start? And she said, oh, about 7.30 or 8. I got down there at 7.30 and she already had over half of that 100-foot row hoed <laughs> because she didn't think I could do it right. <laughs> Shit, that's so funny. She wouldn't let you do a lot of things because you didn't do it exactly the way she did. Yeah, I don't think. Well, she would let me wash dishes, um, but that's about it. I don't think she would let me do anything other than wash dishes. She let me help her hang up her laundry on the clothesline. But that's kind of it. The only chore, as we got older, the only chore she ever gave to me and Diane was the laundry. Mm-hmm. And we had one of those ringer-type washers oh, out on the back porch. And you filled it up with a water hose. And uh-uh. you'd have to wash the clothes and then pick them up, run them through the ringer to squeeze the juice out. And then you'd have to drain the tub and put fresh water in and rinse it and run it back through the ringers. And then you'd hang them on the clothesline and everything. And back then, there's no such thing as permapressed. Everything that dried on the, on the line would come out all wrinkly mm-hmm. so we took them inside and i used to tell my kids at school this story they said why would you do all of that and i said because you needed clean clothes and so we would take them inside and we'd put them on the table and she had a coca-cola bottle with a sprinkler top on it a cork with a sprinkler on it and we would sprinkle the freshly dried clothes with water and roll them oh. up and stuff them in a plastic bag mm-hmm. put them in the refrigerator and when they got good and cold we'd take them out because there was no steam irons then. Uh-huh. We'd take them out, and when we would iron them, that water we sprinkled on would cause them to steam, and we could get the wrinkles out. But we had to, we we ironed everything except towels. We'd iron sheets and pillowcases. And why? Jimmy and Steve's boxer shorts, because if you didn't, it would be wadded up in a wad, and you couldn't stretch it. You'd have to stretch it out to put it on because it was so wrinkled. There was no such thing as permapress. Uh-huh. The worst part was, was ironing blue jeans. Because back then the boys had to have this sharp crease in the front and the back of their blue jeans, or they weren't styling. Oh my! So gosh. we had to lay those blue jeans out, and after we'd sprinkled them and steamed them to have a crease in the in the uh, legs. So one day, Mama came in with this most wonderful invention called jean stretchers. And it was a wire that was wide at the top and narrow at the bottom, and you'd slide them down into the jeans. Uh, where you wanted the creases to be, and it would stretch the wrinkles out, and it would put the crease in the jeans, so we didn't have to iron jeans anymore. That was a that's one of the greatest inventions ever made, as far as I was concerned. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so we it, we we uh, did it, our Saturdays all day long. We're de- dealing with washing, hanging out, sprinkling, and ironing clothes, and then putting them away. Oh my gosh! Jimmy and Steve thought we just laid in the house and watched TV all day long while they were out digging fence posts. They just didn't know what we had to do. Yep. Because every Friday was clean that wood floor in the in the den in the kitchen and run the buffer over it so it had those shiny circles all over it. <laughs> I still have her buffer at my house. You do? I do. That's amazing. <laughs> well, uh, I personally am very glad I don't have to spend my entire Saturday doing laundry that way. That sounds not very fun. It wasn't fun. Diane would iron on the ironing board, and I would put a blanket and a, sh- a sheet over the table 
and ironed the flat stuff like the sheets and the pillowcases and things like that. But you had to ha- pretty much have an ironing board to get those sleeve yeah. sleeves up in there and iron those. It was a chore. It sounds awful. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. And my Aunt Carol and my dad are visiting right now, and I have cooked them two HelloFresh meals. And my Aunt Carol keeps going, is this your podcast sponsor? Because these meals are so tasty. I'm going to have to start ordering them myself. We have enjoyed HelloFresh so much this week. I enjoy them usually anyway, but it's really nice to introduce somebody that has never had HelloFresh in my house. I'm cooking these meals for her and my dad, and they are just enjoying them thoroughly. And what a great way to not waste your time at the grocery store when you have people coming in for a visit. I already have three meals ready to go. I can just pull them out and cook them up and enjoy. It's been awesome. But I just read something that I did not know that I have to share. Okay. HelloFresh has a brunch option. You can get brunch for HelloFresh. You can get a dessert board. I mean, I just figured this out from this copy myself, and I will be ordering those two items for sure. They have fall, um, fall-centric maybe recipes that are happening now, so you can check those out. Farm fresh ingredients come to your house within just a few days. Uh, HelloFresh is so affordable. It's actually less expensive to have a HelloFresh meal than it is to go to de- to go out to a restaurant to eat. And everything is just delicious. If you're vegan, they have vegan meals. If you're vegetarian, they have vegetarian meals. You can customize the meals that you receive by going to HelloFresh.com, signing up, and just telling them what you're into. I love this system, this service. I use it every week and I have for years. I can't recommend it enough. And so does Aunt Carol and my dad, Papa J. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Wife65 and use the code Wife65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Wife65 and use the code Wife65 for 65 percent off and enjoy America's number one meal kit. (laughs) Now, my mother said her Saturday was spent doing her hair. So did you do your hair on Saturday? (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) I had nowhere to go. We lived out in the country. Once we came home from school, we pretty much didn't go, go anywhere. Well, she lived in the country, too, but she said her Saturday she would roll her hair up in Coke cans. I remember And that. then iron it on the ironing board to get because she had curly, curly hair. Well, I had straight, stringy, fine baby hair, <laughs> and there wasn't much you could do with that kind of hair. <laughs> I actually, when I was 15, I went to work for my cousin in her beauty shop, and I was the shampoo girl. Oh, yeah? My best friend were, and I worked there together, and we had to wash hair and uh, wash the towels, keep those washed and dried, and... um she would, I, I could tease the hair and then the beautician would smooth the hair down because we wore those big old teased up beehives yes. when I was a teenager. So I, I, that was my first real paying job. Oh, yeah. As a shampoo girl. Yeah. That's so cool. What cousin was it? <laughs> uh, Carol Knuckles. Oh, okay. And Paula was my best friend at that time. And, we, and Paula was Carol's sister. And so we worked for Carol. That's so cool. 
And I didn't Melba know that. Gore, she was a beautician there, so we worked with Melba too. Oh, did you remember I, Melba? I do remember Melba, sort of. Uh-huh. I remember her name. She and Tommy Haynes dated quite a long time. Okay, I remember her name. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what she looked like, but I remember her name. But part of working at the beauty shop is that Carol would do our hair for us, so we didn't have to do our hair. Oh, so you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to roll Coke cans on your hair. Did well, you have my, long hair? I, it was down to my shoulder blades. I don't remember you ever. Oh, I do remember you having sort of like a bob one time when I was little. Maybe I had, like chin. I like had the fish. flip at one time. You know what the flip is? Yes, where it goes. Uh huh. It comes yes. straight down and flips out on the side. <laughs> we all had a flip. How'd you get it to flip like that? Uh, that's what you would put on the curlers. <laughs> oh, okay. So you just wore a regular cur- no Coke uh-huh. cans. No, my hair was too fine. Those Coke cans wouldn't have stayed in my hair. No, I don't think they wouldn't mind either. I think mm-hmm. I have. I think I have some Kemp or Gentry hair. I mm-hmm. don't have my mother's hair. Her hair was always really, really curly, and I definitely don't have curly hair. I don't have a curl anywhere. No, my, my whole my hair's never held a curl. I've had perms. Well, it looks like curl now. Well, it's been on curlers. Oh, I this see. morning. So got it, got it. You did it. I did it. You did I it. I did my hair. <laughs> So anything you ever wanted to do besides being a teacher? No. When I was in third grade, I had the most wonderful teacher. And um, I remember she taught me cursive handwriting, and I loved that part of, of school. And she just did such a nice job with all of the things that she taught that I went home one day and I said, Mom, I want to be a teacher just like Miss Teal. Aww. And my second grade teacher, I actually went to work for my second grade teacher when I was a freshman in college. Uh-huh. And she was quite old by then. And my first day on the job, I was working. I would go to school for three hours in the morning and then go to Bowden and go to work for her at my old, at the old elementary school. And my first day on the job, she said, I'm going to go down to the lounge and take a little nap. Uh, just keep them busy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was a freshman in college. Wow. So I. I did what she'd been doing. You know, well, on my first day, it was probably like a week or two in because I kind of need the routine. And I'd just do what she'd been doing with them. And I took them out on the playground all by myself. And we played on the playground. And Wow. Those were different times. Indeed. Very <laughs> different. So you never wanted to do anything. I never had now. anything else in my mind. Except, well, at one time when I was in home ec in high school, because I was really big in the home economics class, I thought I might have liked to have been a pattern maker mm-hmm. clothes patterns you know let somebody design the clothes and then i would figure out how to make the pattern to make that dress yeah but the only school for that was new york oh. and uh mama had just finished putting jimmy and steve and diane all through the trade school for diane's nursing and steve's work and jimmy's mechanics and i knew she couldn't afford to send me because i was the last of the kids so we squeaked by to get me through the four-year college there in town or in Carrollton. So that's where I went. But by then, I'd already settled on being a teacher. You were good that. was that. just kind of a whim in high school. Right, right. But you were so good at being a teacher. You were really I good feel at like I was. I, in fact, I had a the little boy I was talking about in my fifth grade class who was teaching on a high school level. I saw her at church a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, somebody came up and said something to me, and she turned around and she said, well, she's the best teacher my child ever had. She's Aww. the only one who ever made sure he was learning something, even though he was way above the other kids. And, I, you know, I love to hear parents say that, that the parents appreciate what you did, too. Yeah, I'm sure. As a good teacher, especially, I would, you know, with Isla being dyslexic, a good teacher is a make or break deal 
for yeah. a kid that has a distinction, even if they're way above grade level, that's still a distinction. Mm-hmm. That's something that sets them apart from everybody else, from the typical student, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I had one teacher in fourth grade, Miss Thompson, who um, just got it. She just mm-hmm. understood it and got it and went, this is what we're going to do. And Isla thrived that year. And then she had an English teacher, Mr. Paisano, who's the same thing. He was like, I get it. I know exactly how her brain works. Here's how you write an essay. And all these, you know, years before they'd already started on writing essays or papers in elementary school. But when she got to him in seventh grade, he just knew how to teach her. And she got it right away. And she still uses the entire. He was like, this is just math. It's a formula. Here's a, a, a opening paragraph, a conclusion, and however many paragraphs you need in the between, and each paragraph needs to mean something different than the others. And here you this subject of this one, subject of this one. That's all you do for anything you write always. So don't make it complicated. And she just kind of went, oh, well, why didn't they say that in you know, fifth grade? Mm-hmm. I could have been doing this for years. Yeah. So she has no problem even to this day writing papers. And it's just that one teacher who went, I understand what you need um, and just sat down with her and gave her a little extra support. I think a lot of kids just need a little bit of extra support. Yeah. And it's, I I would never, I mean, I love Girl Scouts. I think I'm good at teaching in that capacity, but I can't imagine dealing with the parents. Um, That, that to me, especially my experience of early education here and um, the parents make it very difficult sometimes for a teacher to do their job and so a teacher gets tired of doing their job i used to tell people the best thing that could happen to us would be to have a whole school full of orphans (laughs) and somebody said that's the problem we do have a whole school full of orphans but they have adults at the home yeah and parents aren't raising their children anymore they let tv and the internet raise their children Mm -hmm. but uh I, i we had we were the central school in the middle of the county so they couldn't afford to have a teacher for the blind and the deaf at every school, so they'd send all of those children to our school. So my Aunt Faye, who taught at the school for the deaf up in, in uh, Cave Spring, uh-huh. came all the way from Cave Spring to Carrollton to teach sign language to anybody who wanted to take sign language. So I just, oh, I think I'll go take the sign language class, and I did, and I was the only one at our school who did. So who guess who got all the Deaf children oh as they gosh. came through my oh grade my level, gosh. and you know they go to a special ed teacher who teaches in sign when they're for one period a day, and then right. she has to move on to the next group. And when they come back to your room, they're just there, and I guess they just think all of a sudden, well, they can hear her talk, but they can't hear the teacher for the deaf <laughs> talk. Ridiculous! But I took sign language, but all I could do was simple phrases, and I could finger spell things. I can't even do that anymore because I haven't used it in so long, but. um they they just they sat in the class and I you know, you can't teach a child about the laws of motion if you can't sign this what you're talking about. Yeah, and so yeah. I felt like uh, a real failure mm-hmm. uh with the deaf children because I couldn't I couldn't teach them what they needed to know. And then I uh got the blind children too and mm-hmm. I learned to use the braille machine to do all their vocabulary on the on the braille machine and and uh they're the neediest bunch. They, uh, 
we I had one little girl who was so blind she could see a shadow as big as a bus passing by, and that was about all she oh, could see. Bless her heart. But she was extremely lazy. <laughs> she oh, didn't yeah. want to do anything except eat and sleep. So I did her vocabulary words, and she would sit at the Braille machine and do her vocabulary, learn her vocabulary that way. So I had to type it in Braille, mm-hmm. and uh, so she could read it. And then I had to record it, and it was on a. I forgot what a language master, I believe is the machine it was called. And I would put it in and push a button to record. And then she would put it in and it would be on the one to play back. Mm-hmm. And then she would hear it play back and then she could record it mm. and, and hear her own voice reading that word. So, And then she could finger, she could read with her fingers on the Braille. So I only did that one year, though. I only had one blind student. But I just, you know, my principal t- always told me, she said, I know I can give you the pr- children with problems because I know you'll work with them. So Yeah, you'll figure it out. Yeah, I tried to. you figure it out. I wish I wish teachers got paid what they deserve for the work they do. Uh, and not just got paid, but my my complaint having a kid that had a distinction was that there wasn't there just not enough human bodies in the classroom. Right. Not enough adults in the classroom. Luckily, this elementary school, my kids went to allowed parent volunteers until a certain age till I think like third grade. Um, so kindergarten through third grade, if the teacher chose so they could have one or two parents every single classroom the opposite of what you're describing the parents in my school were super involved in their kids education which can also be problematic for a different set of reasons right when a kid needs to fail and a kid needs to figure it out a lot of the time a kid wasn't allowed to parents would swoop in and figure it out for them which is so counterproductive. Right. And it tells the kid, I don't believe that you can do this yourself. Right. But I volunteered in the classroom because I knew when Isla was four that she just didn't process like learning the same way everyone else did to the point where I asked her preschool teacher, does she need to repeat preschool? Cause she's a July birthday. And I thought, well, maybe she's just developmentally too young. And, um, they were like, no, no, th- this will click. I, I promise you. Some kids, it just clicks like, doesn't click till first grade. Well, by <laughs> December first grade, her first grade teacher went, this is not clicking. We need to get her tested. I think she's dyslexic. And uh, she was. But I w- stayed in the classroom because I wanted to watch her, not to interfere with her, but to observe her relative to her peers. Because mm-hmm. obviously, Georgia was a, an excellent student with no effort. But that's not typical either. So I wanted to watch her with her peer group because I'm not a teacher and see if she needed help, if it was just me, if it was the teacher, if it was her, if it what was what was the disconnect? Mm-hmm. And the disconnect was she was dyslexic. So the people uh, so many parents volunteered in the classroom that if any kid had any problems there was someone to help. You know, I'm not a teacher, but in kindergarten, I can definitely help you put your letters in order. <laughs> you know, uh, that stuff is And just having easy. somebody to listen to them read their stories. Yes. Because a lot of times they'll go home and nobody's got time to sit down and listen to them read stories. I, I, we retained children in the grade when I first started teaching, and I had a young man in my class, and he was the sweetest young man, but he was such a follower. And he was uh, he was quite behind the other kids. And so I talked to his mother about retention, and she just burst into tears. And she said, oh, I don't want to be retained. People make fun of him. And I said, well, 
he's going to continue to get further behind because once they go into the higher grades, there's nobody there to help him catch up. And mm-hmm. I said, I promise you, if you let him stay in second grade, we'll get him caught up. Mm-hmm. And so he was in my class again this, the next year. And years later, uh, well, when he was a senior in high school, he was killed in an automobile wreck. Oh, no. And his mother called me and she said, I never told you this, but that was the best thing that ever happened to him when you retained him. She said he was no longer a follower. He was the leader of the class because he was older and he was a little bigger because he was a very small child. And she said he he um, thrived after he was retained the year. But you couldn't convince most parents that that was going to help their children. Yeah. Um, And it became a stigma to be retained. Back then, it wasn't a big deal. Well, I mean, I I actually actively asked uh-huh. everybody. And some parents do. When they realize should she be held back? Because I'm cool with it. Let's do it now instead of in like fifth or sixth grade when mm-hmm. she's dying. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, no, intellectually, she's very much at grade level. It's just the function of learning mm-hmm. that's hard for her. So if you hold her back, is that really going to help her function of learning? Yeah. No. So they their perspective, which I think was right, was to keep her in a social peer group that she was thriving in. She was thriving socially. So they're like, if this function is going to be with her throughout, you're just going to have to figure out how to function with it. But let's not put her back a year where at certain grades would be difficult for her because she would be so much older. So let's keep the social piece working and the educational piece will just have to kind of work through so that's what we did and i got that input from multiple places i got it from a psychologist um, that evaluated her through the school district i got it from a psychologist who we hired privately and um from her teachers her teachers were all she's completely intellectually on par with everybody in this class she's done learn the same right so well, you know, in the Deep South, we love our football. So if you had a boy who you need to retain and the daddies were opposed to it, just said, well, just think he'll be a year older and a year bigger when he gets to high school to play football. And wham, they want to retain right then. I think some of them might have requested it even if the kid didn't need it if they thought it helped with football. That's so funny. Maybe I should have played football. I don't know. But I think she's fine. She's doing great her junior year. I feel like this is the honest truth. I feel like she has now in her junior year figured out how to be a student Mm -hmm. that works for her Mm -hmm. that literally took her from we i first suspected this when she was four i started asking about it when she was five and when she was six her teacher said something's wrong so i have been helping her remediate this in some capacity since she was six years old so at 16 i think we finally figured out what works for her so which is 10 years of just a roller coaster in school of frustration and mm-hmm. upset mm-hmm. where grades are concerned. I've always said to her, I just need a pass fail. I need from you a pass fail. If you pass and you've done your best work, I am so happy. If you if you barely pass and you phoned it in, I'm not happy. But if you're really, really trying and you're a C student, Let's hey, let's go on to the next grade. I'm cool with it. But you're one in a million parents because most parents won't have that kind of patience. That's that's not the way I did it when I was your age, and you're going to no. do it the right way. And it's and not. and they put so much pressure on these kids. I can't imagine being a child. We grew up in such a carefree time, you know. Yeah. Our our 
family lived on a road, a dirt road that had 19 houses and 16 of them belonged to either a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, or a cousin. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, you couldn't get away with anything because no. my aunt Charlotte pick you up and whip you just as quick as my mom and daddy would <laughs> if you misbehaved at her house. But you were also free to go to that house if, if anything was wrong and you were at home without mama there. And you could just go walk in and say, hey, Charlotte, I need something to eat. And she'd always have some biscuits. She made the best biscuits and buttered them like crazy and then put a little sugar in them. Oh, <laughs> oh man, they were good. Sometimes I think we'd go over there to get a sugar biscuit even when we when mama had food at home. <laughs> it was so good. But it was just a good way to it was a good way to grow up and kids don't have that that sense of community anymore. That's the truth. They don't have I think that's why all these kids have so much anxiety and depression. I do too. Is they don't really feel like they have a good support system. I agree. Even if you have very supportive parents, your parents can't be there for you 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Uh, it's true. You need other, and sometimes you want to talk to somebody besides your parents. It's very true. This little community our, we raised our kids in was about as close as we could get in LA mm -hmm. of just uh, knowing everybody on the street for blocks and blocks. And, you know, Halloween would come and the kids would just run free because they would always run into someone that knew them yeah. or they knew and it was just really safe but it is it still isn't the same no as they daddy always kept a horse at least one horse for mm -hmm. us to ride i love to ride horses and um so we had this one horse that everybody would come over on sunday afternoon all the cousins there might be 10 or 12 of us there that day and they would come over to ride the horse so you could get on the horse at the back doorsteps, and you got two trips around the house, and then you had to get off and let the next kid on. Mm -hmm. And we would do that all day long. The horse was just so docile. He would just let you do anything you want to do. But after a number of years, Daddy said, I got to get rid of this horse. And we said, Daddy, you don't get rid of our horse. And he said, oh, we'll get another one. But I can't th get this horse to do anything but go two trips around the house and stop at the back doorsteps. <laughs> so he sold the horse because he couldn't get him to, to go out the road. That's so funny. <laughs> and then he bought me a Shetland pony and a little Surrey with the fringe on top. Aww. And so I rode up and down the road on Sunday afternoons and picked up the cousins and I'd take them down to the next house and drop them off and pick that kid up and just drive the kids up and visit and drop them off to visit while I went and picked the next kid up. I even have a picture of your mother riding in that little buggy with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How funny. That sounds really fun. It was fun. I bet that Great was way really to grow fun. up. Did you camp with them when they were camping? Oh, my up? gosh. We. We used to camp every weekend, mm -hmm. every weekend, and we could have as many as 30 or 40 people down there. That's amazing. Yeah. We'd have the big fire going, and um, we would go into other people's pastures when we got tired of camping out there at Daddy's farm, and people would let you come and, and camp on their riverbank. And I remember one time we went camping down there, and we had a blanket. We threw the blanket on the ground, and we rolled up in that blanket, and we slept flat on the ground. But we found an old pair of bed springs. People, they don't know about bed springs, but they were just metal springs uh, in a frame. And we threw our blanket over that metal set of springs and slept on those bed springs. And they'd punch and gouge, but boy, it was better than laying on that hard ground. Uh. But I never slept into a tent until... I slept inside a tent until I started doing Girl Scouts with my oldest daughter. Uh -huh. <laughs> so... We, uh, my uncle Will would come over. He was, uh, he was a funny man, Papa Kemp's brother. He uh, was missing one arm. Mm -hmm. He propped his arm on top of his shotgun when he had been out hunting, and he just accidentally bumped it and he shot his arm off. <laughs> That's so crazy. <laughs> and he would come every year and go on one camping trip with us, and he always cooked chicken stew in a big old black pot over the campfire. 
So my Uncle Tom was one of those who would get there just as the men had finished getting all the boats unloaded and all the hooks out in the banks to catch fish all night long, just in time to eat supper. Mm -hmm. And he'd go one trip down the river during the night uh, when you'd go down the river with a light and you'd shine the light on the poles. And if they were bouncing, you knew you had a fish and you'd go over there and take the fish off. He would do that one time and then he'd go to bed. Hmm. And the next morning he was up and ready to go home as soon as breakfast was finished and he never helped clean up. Mm. And they got kind of aggravated with him. And uh, he complained to Uncle Will that the chicken stew didn't have enough pepper. So Uncle Will just poured a can full of pepper in there and let it settle to the bottom. Oh, and he, everybody else got their chicken stew scooped from the top. And when t- Tom came up, he scooped all the way to the bottom and got that scoop full of that pepper. <laughs> and he said, got enough pepper in it for you tonight? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And then they took Uncle Tom when he was asleep on his blow-up mattress and that four of them picked it up at each corner and they set him over in the river while he was asleep. And he floated down the river <laughs> asleep on that. And then I guess he must have tried to turn over because they heard him screaming down downstream when he fell off in the water. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, Tom. Tom used to always insist on giving me a kiss on the cheek. And it was oh slobbery. It was I always would avoid him like the plague. I, I never like, remember Tom giving me a kiss. Oh, he kissed me on the cheek. Nothing inappropriate. Right. Nothing like nothing bad. He just wanted to kiss me on the cheek, and it just was. Bleh. So I would <laughs> I would steer clear of him. He was always very sweet to me though. Well, Daddy's sister Isla was the was the um. Black uh, she, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I remember she lived in Bremen and. And she always cooked her dried beans and peas in a pressure canner. Uh-huh. And you're supposed to soak them beforehand so all those husks come off, and uh-huh. you skim those off before you put them in the pressure canner. And she would never do that. So she would call and say, Haskell, need you and Will May and the kids to come up here and help me scrape the peas off the ceiling. And we did that. <laughs> I don't know how many times we had to go up there because her pressure co- cooker exploded and peas <laughs> stuck to the ceiling. <laughs> so we had to go up there and scrape peel the peas off her ceiling for she her. She never learned? Uh-uh. Oh. Why? Stubborn. I say Nyla. <laughs> hey, Nyla was, I was terrified of her. I was scared to death of her because she was so tall mm-hmm. and she was so thin and she had that rough, scrubby voice mm-hmm. and she always had a long cigarette uh-huh. and she just terrified me. She wore all this jewelry. I was so scared of her. Yeah. But she never had kids, so she didn't really know how to, how to um, relate to children. Yeah. But they took vacations, and we, you know, we were lucky if we got to go out for a weekend camping trip. But she took vacations to the mountains, and we had to sit through slide after slide after slide about her vacations that she took, knowing that we never got to take a vacation. But uh, uh, she she ended up being a lonely old lady when she got older. That's so sad. Yeah. And then I named my daughter after her. Yeah. <laughs> no, you didn't name her after no, her. You I just didn't. liked the name. <laughs> I liked the name. I did not name her after her. You're right. I was going to name her Charlotte, um, not after Aunt Charlotte, but because Bert's middle name is Charles. And he said, you know, this one's definitely a boy. And of course, it was not a boy. And I was like, well, let's just name her Charlotte. And he said, I don't like that name. I just don't like Charlotte. But Charlotte was a family name. It was back maybe maybe my Aunt Charlotte's grandmother had oh. been a Charlotte. So it was an old name yeah. in the family. I love the name Charlotte, uh, but Isla's definitely an Isla. Yeah. Her name suits her for sure. 
She's, well, let's just hope she doesn't ever drag on a long old cigarette and wear lots of jewelry. <laughs> and explode peas on her ceiling. <laughs> right. That would be bad. I wouldn't be surprised. She is not a natural cook. Her sister is a natural cook, just like their daddy. You know, Bert could take a shoe and some pepper and it would be delicious. And George is the same and Isla just doesn't have a clue. And it's kind of like me. I can cook what I know how to cook, but I can't just like wing it and cook anything. And yeah, Isla has no interest whatsoever in learning how to cook. So she might explode peas on the ceiling. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been, I think I was not to toot my own horn too loud, but I very um, consciously decided to bring my kids home for a couple weeks every year from the time they were really little. Mm-hmm. Because where I we grew up, is so specific in the context of the world, Mm -hmm. you know? Obviously, I don't know what a lot of the world is like growing up, but I do know what it's like in New York and and Atlanta and in California. And so you can make some assumptions based on living in those places, what most of the United States is like. Well, maybe not even most of, but probably what most people think of when they think of what childhood is like. So it was really important to me because I grew up camping on the river too. Maybe not with all the same cast of characters, but, you know, George Haynes would come in and throw Mm. cherry bomb in the fire in the middle of the night and wake everybody up. And, um, you know, I had similar, a similar experience and I wanted to make sure they had that experience so that they knew where they came from so that they understood that different cultures aren't wrong, they're just different, and that it is important to love people for who they are, not what you perceive them to be, but who they really are. And I think I think it kind of worked. Like I really wanted them to, to know their roots in a way. Bert's roots are a little different in that his his mom is from philly but lives in tampa so the roots of her family aren't in tampa i mean we would always go to tampa and see her two brothers and see the cousins like that but it what the the few times we'd go to philly it was the same feeling as when i go to bowden you know where that's where everybody is and that's where everybody although alice from new jersey Gigi has such a huge family and is so very philly but I just didn't have the, it's not my family, and I just didn't have the opportunity and to go there and like I did in Georgia. And at a certain point, you kind of have to choose. And Philly is very similar to L.A. in that it's the same kind of culturally mm-hmm. very similar. But Bowden, Georgia is not at all similar. Um, so I'd like to think my kids learned a lot from spending those two weeks every summer. It started out being every Easter by just being there at, at, you know, Granny's house when we had covered dish for Easter. And I don't know if they remember that. Now they were pretty little. Yeah. But but the lake and the cousins and uh, I tried to every year camp on the river like we always did for several years in a row. So they knew what it was like to camp mm-hmm. on the river with no tent. Although I think their Uncle Steve did put a pop-up tent up for them. <laughs> I remember one night when they were sleeping at the lake and they were all sleeping out on their cots and Steve was out there in his camper. And during the night, 
the other girls just one at a time came in the house and, and left Isla out there. And when she woke up the it next was morning, was it Georgia? Yeah. She was just extremely upset because they'd left her out there by herself all night long. They said, we didn't leave you by yourself. Steve was out there. So Yeah. <laughs> I have a picture of her and Steve and two cots next to each other asleep. And she was very upset. But, but it's so neat that her great uncle slept next to her in a cot in right. the middle of nowhere, you know, in Alabama. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing mm-hmm. experience that I hope, I think that they keep pretty close to the vest. You know, when Georgia was looking at colleges, um, she was looking at places that felt like a small town. And I don't think that was a big, that was a coincidence. I yeah. think yeah. she enjoyed, I think both girls enjoy going back there and being part of the bigger family, you know, because every time we were at the lake, Scott and Greg, who are your first cousins, my second cousins, always come by on the boat mm-hmm. and say hi. They've seen my kids every summer for several summers now. And uh, Greta and Mark Kirby, who are across the boat, the, across the cove, come over, even though they're not family. They're family. I mean, they've been in my daddy's life forever. Mm-hmm. Come over and say hi. And I don't know. It's just a different experience of the world. There's a lot of values that come from small town living that are are invaluable Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. that kind of pitching and get stuff done Mm -hmm. um um work do your best job and do it right and and be proud of it is good but jimmy has such a good reputation as a mechanic i mean he can fix anything it's true and i think that goes back to daddy and because i talked about how mama had us slaving away over a hot ironing board every saturday Jimmy was telling me one time he he was fencing in the pastures there where Steve lives now, where we grew up. And he told Jimmy and Steve they had to put, dig the fence post holes and put them in the ground. And he said, I want to be able to stand at that first post and look down through there and not see another post until I see my eye hits that last post. Mm-hmm. Nothing out to the side. And he said, Jimmy said, we dug those post holes as straight as we could dig them, put them in the ground, called him out there to look at it. And he came out there and he looked and he said, nope, I see two or three posts out of line. Take them all up and do it again. Mm. And Jimmy, and then he told, told, told me later when Jimmy was telling that story, he said, I knew that fence would have been perfectly fine the mm. first time they did it. But they needed to learn that when you do a job, you do it right. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the that was the big lesson that Jimmy and Steve both learned because uh, Steve has quite the reputation with his business that uh, he has to have inspections done when he does his work. And the guy at the county inspection office said, if we didn't have to, by law, come and look at your job, we wouldn't even do it because we know it's going to be perfect. That's great. And Jimmy has people who park used to park a car at his shop for three months waiting on him to work on it just because they wouldn't let anybody else touch their car. And Diane was the queen of labor and delivery nurses. So mm-hmm. I think we just all were taught that you do your best. Mm-hmm. And if it means you put in some time you're not paid for, you do it. Yeah. And if it means that you don't get to do some of the other things because you're busy with your job, you do it. Mm-hmm. And I like to think I've instilled that in my girls because they're both very um, hard workers and they're good at their jobs and, and uh, well-organized. And um, their daddy had to do with well-organized, not me. <laughs> I always have so many projects going, I can't get anything finished. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that be a man of your word is the part. You know, if you say you're going to do a job, you Mm -hmm. do it right. You do your best and you do it. And if you can't, for some reason, finish it, then you own up to that, too. Right. This is out of my depth or I don't have the expertise for this or whatever. Well, mom and daddy taught us 
how to behave. Mm-hmm. But we didn't behave all the time. Well, no. <laughs> Especially when they weren't home. Who does? <laughs> we used to take the tin off the barn. And there's a steep hill down behind the barn, and we'd take the tin off and use it as a sled. And we'd go down that hill as fast as that tin would slide down the hill. And then right before time for Daddy to get home, we'd go nail the tin back on the barn. (laughs) (laughs) He probably knew it. Yeah. But uh, he never said anything. But I fell off my tin one time and cut a big gash in my leg. I got about a four-inch scar on my leg. And they said, oh, Mama's going to kill us. And I said, nah. I just went to the house and got a rag and wrapped around my leg and tied it and wore my long pants. And she never even knew. Uh, Somebody said, how did you keep from getting a lockjaw or something? Right. Getting cut by a piece from of rusty tin. tin. I said, well, I probably had had enough tetanus shots from all my other uh, bang-ups. That Injuries. I was I was immune to the lockjaw because we were always getting stitches or something. Yeah. It was a rough and tumble way to grow it up. It was. Yeah. I broke a lot of bones. I never had stitches, but Wade... My cousin Wade got stitches literally every five minutes. Well, Jimmy fell off the truck one time chasing Diane, and she ran and climbed up in the bed of the truck. And when she leaped over the other side, he tripped and fell, cracked his head open, and had to have staples put in his head. Oof. And then he fell going across the road one night when they were running across the road to go to the theater and fell and broke his collarbone. And uh, So he was he was pretty much of a klutz like I was as far as getting hurt all the time because— I ended up in the hospital with stitches in my finger because I cut it when I was slicing a watermelon. And, oh, my goodness. And so we just all had stitches and that sort of thing. Jimmy was, uh, when we lived in Covington, I was only about three years old, and he had a pet snake, a little green snake, and it stayed up in the pine tree. And I was outside playing. Mama wouldn't always let me go over to play with my cousin next door, so I would get on my tricycle on one side of the garden, and she'd get on her tricycle on the other side of the garden, and we'd ride up and down on the the sides of the garden and talk and yell across the garden at each other and play together that Who was way. This? Martha Ann. Oh, okay. And uh, so Jimmy was out there when mama was working in the garden and that green snake lived in that pine tree and it would it dropped down on Jimmy's shoulder and just wrapped around his neck and Jimmy would pet it. And mama thought any snake that's alive is a bad snake. So <laughs> she didn't know Jimmy had been petting the snake. She went over there and snatched that snake <laughs> that snake off his neck, threw it on the ground and just chopped it to pieces. Oh with her my hoe. gosh. Jimmy was devastated because she'd killed his pet snake. Oh my goodness, <laughs> I never heard that story. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> maybe that's why daddy doesn't have any pets. <laughs> he was devastated <laughs> from that one incident. Yeah. 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 She didn't like snakes much at oh, all, did she? No. She was scared to death of them. But she was, but she had no problem attacking them right. and killing them. She she killed a, a copperhead in the road. Uh, we had an old dog named Toby and Elmira lived across the road and we were going across the road to her house and Toby got in front of us and started growling and snapping at us and we'd walk, try to walk around him and he'd walk over there and pace back and forth and wouldn't let us cross the road. And I ran back to the house and I said, Mama, I think Toby has has uh, rabies. rabies because he's snarling and growling at us. And she went out there and there was that copperhead coiled up in the middle of the road. He was oh, trying wow. to keep us from crossing the road. So she chopped his head off. And she hung him over a limb of the tree and she said, He'll wiggle till sundown. She didn't realize it was just the muscle spasms it was having as it, as the muscles relaxed. But it, we watched it all afternoon. And when the sun went down, that snake stopped wiggling. And she took it down out of the tree then. But How she wouldn't crazy. put it on the ground because she's afraid it'd wiggle off somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but see, she chopped it. Uh-huh. And then she somehow, probably with the hoe, picked it up, picked it up with the hoe and put it in. So she wasn't really. So she was scared. If they were alive. But not, but not. She wasn't as scared to go after them and kill well, them. Well, you got like, a five-foot hose ho- handle, so you're five feet away from it when you start chopping. Because my Aunt Phyllis, if there was a snake in the yard, she would go in the house. Uh-huh. There was no killing a snake 
for Phyllis, if I remember correctly. She was leaving. Oh, yeah. But that's a different kind of fear management is that I'll just take care of this myself. Chop, and it's over. Jimmy and Steve used to fish in the river every weekend. And they always kept the gun in there in case there were snakes. <laughs> Jimmy said they were going down the uh, creek one night and a snake fell over in the boat with them. And he said they started shooting that snake. I don't know if they shot holes in the boat or not, but <laughs> yeah, it was, a, I guess, probably a water moccasin. I don't know, probably. but it fell over in the boat with them. And those are kind of scary. They are scary. They're actually very docile unless they're threatened. And then they're nasty. Oh, yeah. Scary little critters. I was fishing off the creek bank one day after school, and I threw my line over in there and just had a little short cane pole. I didn't have a rod and reel and just dropped it down in there. And I looked over at my bobber, and there came this water moccasin up out of the water with that mouth open with all that cottony-looking stuff. And I said, let's get out of here. Know, so we right? never went back to that spot to fish again. But We used to fish every—Paula and I used to fish after school nearly every afternoon. Did you? Yeah. It's awfully fun She could fish. get away from home then. <laughs> <laughs> her chore was keeping the house spotlessly clean so oh, yeah that's not so fun no. so can we talk about diane yeah um how is it to be without a sister it's the most devastating thing that's ever happened to me i, I just can't imagine i don't have mm-hmm. a sibling i would have done anything to have had a sibling well we shared the same bedroom the same bed for our for my first 16 years that's and then crazy. when the boys got married and moved out, I moved into their room. And then uh, she went off to school and stayed over in Anniston during the week and came home on the weekends. Um, and we weren't really good friends in school because she stayed in the house all the time. And Jimmy, I traipsed after Jimmy and Steve everywhere they went. Um, but as we got older, and especially after my kids were born, because, you know, you call Diane when the kid has a fever. You don't call the doctor. You call Diane when yes. they have a toothache and what can you do? And she was just such a great nurse. But yeah. um, we could take a driving trip and we could be fine. And then one of us would pop off something and the other would be so mad and we wouldn't speak for the next 50 miles. And then we'd be joking and kidding again. So we got <laughs> over it pretty quickly. But yeah. um, she was an unusual person. Yes, she was. That's, a, that's unusual in the best sense of the word, mm-hmm. right? There mm-hmm. was some of it, some of it I, I couldn't understand. Some of it was hard and cold, mm-hmm. and some of it was the most delightful, amazing, brilliant, unusual. She was a big, um, complicated uh-huh. person. Yes, Very she complicated. Was. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was. Uh, ne- I I I wasn't close to Diane either till I had kids. I felt like, and actually a little before that, maybe mm-hmm. until I was an adult like a full-blown, like 30, not not in my 20s. And then, same with you. I wasn't as close to you until I was a full-blown adult because you had kids 10 years, uh, 10, 12 years younger. So by the time I was in my 20s, you were still mm-hmm. raising children, raising kids. <laughs> so, and I don't think it's normal for someone to hang out with their aunts when they're in their 20s. You know what I mean? People Probably be like, not. Huh. Of course, my aunt, my youngest aunts were only 13 months older that than I am. Not, so. That does not apply. That's <laughs> abnormal. I didn't have that. Mine were the age of my parents. So, but as you, you know, as you age, I think everybody becomes kind of the same age, sort of, you know, you're all just all an adult until you get to be really old. And then there's a difference again. That's what I think anyway, because I feel like 
you and I are the same age, even though yeah. obviously I'm yeah. 52 and you're, um, I don't even know how old you're. I'm about to be 72. Almost 72. So. Well, Diane never wanted to learn to drive. Why? She never drove in high school. She had no interest in it. She didn't go out. She didn't party. She didn't She didn't leave home, basically. Why do you think that is? She had a very, Merle and Pearl, our aunts, who were just six months younger than she, or four months younger than she was, they were best friends, and they were all overweight, and they never quite fit in because they were country girls, and, and they just never felt like they quite fit in at the high school. And so she just stayed home. She read constantly, mm-hmm. always had a book in her hands. Up until the day she died. I was going to say, um, yep. And so when she decided she wanted to go to nursing school, she had to learn to drive to get herself to nursing school. So Daddy went out and bought her a car and taught her to drive. But me, I was ready to drive at 16, mm-hmm. at 15. And Daddy made me learn to drive on a one-and-a-half-ton dump truck with a five-speed in the floor. <laughs> and he said, if you can drive a five-speed in the floor in a dump truck, you can drive anything. <laughs> That's the truth. So as soon as I could take that truck and and get up to the top of the hill and stop and take off without rolling back down the hill, he let me go get my license. So I started driving when I was 16, wow. and he got me a Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Like a bug? Yeah, oh, a green one. So cute. Headliner was torn out at time. At one time, it didn't have a muffler on it. You could hear it coming for 50 miles <laughs> I so. They were loud with the muffler. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> but before that, he bought a, a, I don't know what model it was, but it was like a 1950-something turquoise and white mercury and the back window went up and down when you push the buttons so, oh my god i had fins on the back and i had to drive that to school for a few weeks and i came home whining until he finally sold that <laughs> but uh, diane drove that little yellow car that had the black um what kind of roof vinyl roof on it mm. until it was just worn slap out mm. and when she was first started nursing she got paid every two weeks and her first check of the month paid her car payment. Mm-hmm. And the second check of the month bought her food and, and paid for her gas. And so that's all the money she made. Hmm. Wow. I made mean, my first year of teaching, I made uh, $6,792 a year. Wow. <laughs> that's nothing. After four years of college, four and a half years of college. Wow. That's but crazy. Diane, Diane had, had a great reputation as a nurse. And the nurses that worked for her in labor and delivery to this day, we can't even talk about her without just bawling. Yeah. Because they loved her dearly. But yeah. she was a tough taskmaster. She she expected them to do a good job. And and some people didn't last long in labor and delivery because she was so demanding that they do the job right. So. Right. Same value system, right? Yeah. Yeah. If absolutely. you're going to do a job, do it right. Especially in labor. Not that it's more important than teaching, obviously. But it is a health crisis in some situations. It's yeah. a crisis. And if you're not precise in what you do, someone could lose their life. I mean, it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. I had a child in my class who we were having our sex education day, and the boys were all in one group, and the girls were all in my room. And this little girl, she was the class clown anyway, and she just arched up out of her chair and fell over on the floor. And I said, get up out of that floor and stop acting silly. And she never moved. And I went over there, and she had stopped breathing. She was already had the clown face with this white... And I had to do my, I said, I told the girls, run to Ms. Evanson's room and stay in there and tell them I need some help. And I had to do mouth to mouth on her. Wow. And I was calm and cool because I'd had all that training with Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. And and I, I had taken some extra Red Cross training just because I was in school. And um, they ran to the office and the assistant principal came over there and they got the ambulance. And by the time the ambulance got there, they said, yeah, she was without oxygen for a period because she had 
you know, the lips start turning blue and the white around the mouth. And they said, she's got the clown face. And uh, but as soon as the ambulance people walk in, I just completely fell apart. I cannot. I was perfectly calm. And I cannot imagine dying when she's in there and some woman in distress and that baby in distress and doing that on a day by daily basis. No, I'm not cut out for that. I'm, I, I, I can wipe noses and and fix boo-boos all day long. <laughs> It's a different it's a different breed isn't mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. yeah she was very respected and revered in her and uh, job her her doctors that she worked with uh were very complimentary of her mm-hmm. uh, every every time i saw one of them they would say boy that diane she's something else yeah and, and i sometimes i'm thinking okay what does he mean by something else <laughs> <laughs> It may be good. It may not be good. That's a loaded, loaded answer because she would flat tell you what was on her mind, wouldn't she? Yes, she would. But no. she never did. She never really enjoyed the camping trips. She went just because the whole family went. Mm. But that was not her cup of tea. If she'd have had her brother, she'd have stayed at home mm. rather than go camping. Not not uh, adventurous in that way. No. But she became adventurous as she got older because oh, yeah. y'all traveled a lot. Well, when we came out to get to pick up your car and take it back to Georgia, she had never driven a straight shift. Oh, I Daddy, know that. Daddy wouldn't let me drive without learning on a straight shift. Mm-hmm. But she, her first car was that, uh, that uh, uh, I think it was a Buick. I'm not sure, and it had a it had an automatic transmission. So we left your house, and I said we got to the desert, and I said this desert is straight and flat. You're going to learn to drive this car because I can't drive all the way across the country by myself. So she got in that car and she learned to drive that straight shift through that desert. We got all the way into Las Vegas. And right before we got into town, she said, I see hills. Get behind the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd get on the interstate and she'd drive on the interstate Uh as long as it was flat and straight. But when we had to get off to go find a place to stay at night or whatever. But one night when we went to the Grand Canyon and I wanted to take a helicopter ride, but we found a discount coupon for a plane ride. So we did a twin engine plane oh, fun. ride and he swooped down into the canyons and told us about the um, geology and the history of the canyons. And she probably would not have done things like that if I hadn't have suggested it, mm. but she would have, she was all set for the helicopter ride too. She wanted to do that, but, uh, and that's still a goal of mine. One of these days I'm going to take a helicopter ride. You should. Yeah. I have never done it, but I bet it's beautiful. Yeah. I have the Grand Canyon. I've never done it. it seemed to me your relationship worked like this. You would have the grand idea and she would book it. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And then you go. Um, and I loved watching you guys. No, I didn't watch you, but knowing about and experiencing vicariously all your trips because you just traveled very regularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, not lot like not once we every went three to, months. We went bit. to on a tour of. Uh, well, she went with us with the band when Brandy was in senior, and they did marched in the New Year's Day parade in in London. Mm-hmm. And she went with us to that. And of course, we had some sick children, so she stayed with me in the room on New Year's Eve and helped me with the sick children while everybody else went out and partied. <laughs> but being a nurse and me being a teacher, I couldn't go off and leave sick children. No. And there's the there designated chaperones so they didn't work hard to raise that money to stay with sick children so they left them there by themselves and i said well then i'm just not going i have to take care of these kids yeah, that's not good. Uh, and it turned out to be an adventure because at one o'clock in the morning we had a boy in the bed who was throwing up and running a fever and a little girl who'd hurt her back and could barely walk and at one o'clock in the morning the fire alarm went off <gasps> and we were on the fifth floor of a hotel that had no had it was an old, old, old hotel. So we had to drag these two children, children down those stairs. Oh my god! <laughs> like they killed us to get them down there. Um, but uh, it was a false alarm. So then we had to get them back up oh the steps my gosh. again. But it's a good thing they hadn't left those children there. Had I not 
realized that they were their chaperones weren't staying, I would have gone with my the ones I was chaperoning. Right. But uh, so we missed the New Year's Eve. But then we went back to London later and took a tour of London and Ireland and Wales and Scotland, and we had a, a grand old time doing that. And we we uh, have been we did three driving trips out here. Mm-hmm. And I think Granny came on two of those three trips. I'm not she sure. She did. She came twice. And, uh, yep. She's fun to travel with. She, I, I told her before we left, I said, you know, Mama, we need to get you some hearing aids because you can't hear. <laughs> no, what happened is she said, I'd been telling her she needed hearing aids. And then she said, right before, a week before we left for the trip, she said, I need to do something. I'm not going to drive all, ride all the way in the back seat to California and not know a thing that's going on in that front seat. <laughs> so I had a friend who worked for an ear, nose, and throat guy, and I asked her if they had anything. And she said, we got this thing she can wear around her neck that will amplify sound for her. And then when she gets back, we'll get her some hearing aids. So I took that home, and I gave it to her. And she put it on as soon as we got in the car. We got all the way to Birmingham, and she said, I'm getting hungry. Let's stop. And so we stopped at, at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. She mm-hmm. loved Kentucky Fried Chicken. And she took that thing off her neck, laid it on the seat, and got out of the car and went in and had lunch. And she came back, and she put it back. She wouldn't be out where anybody in public could see her oh needing something like that. So. She wore that off and on most of the trip. I think by the time she got out here, she may have been using it pretty regularly. I can't remember. But uh, when we got home, I said, we're going to go get you some hearing aids. I can't afford hearing aids. I said, I'll pay for hearing aids, but I can't stand this. We huh, huh, huh all the time. And Diane did that, too, because she was deaf in one ear. Yeah. And so we went and had her fitted for hearing aids. And the day I took her up there to pick up her hearing aids, they put them in and adjusted them in the office. And we were right there on Bankhead, busy Bankhead, right near the Lazy Donkey, and traffic was terrible. And this big old truck came by with that muffler that just, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. And she was coming down the steps, and she, her head whirled up, and she said, I hadn't heard that sound in years. <laughs> She's so funny. <laughs> she was a hoot. She was so, a hoot. Uh, and so she wouldn't wear them at, ho- at all out in public, mm-hmm. but she wore them at home. And so after about the second week, I was down there visiting one day at lunchtime, and Jimmy came in, and and you, know, you could hear the TV all the way out the driveway because she had yeah. it at the highest volume. And he came in one day, and I said something about, well, Mom, I'm glad to see you wearing your hearing aids today. And he said, that's the difference. <laughs> he said, I wondered why I could hear people talk when we were at lunch now because she'd turned the TV down. That's really funny. Uh, but, uh, she just, she was very, it wasn't that she was, um, uh, Vain. Vain. Mm-hmm. It was that she was timid and, and bashful. She was very bashful. Yeah, she was. And then not at all. If yeah. You, if, like she would, Granny would come out with the zinger of the century where you go, I can't even believe that came out of your mouth. She oh. never would have said it in public. Yeah. But she would say it privately to somebody and you just couldn't believe she'd say something like that. She was hysterical. I know. I laughed at her all the time. I don't know if I ever told you a story about the groundhog. I don't know. (laughs) She had this groundhog that stayed in her. It burrowed in her yard all the time. And it it knocked the vents out in the foundation and would crawl up in there and sleep. And they'd have to chase him out and try to put the vents back in. Well, I was there visiting and I was driving around the driveway and I backed up and I went in the house. and I said, Mama, that groundhog sitting out there in the orchard eating your pears, uh, should we call Jimmy? And she said, oh, I got a gun. And she went to the refrigerator and whipped that gun down off the refrigerator and out the door she went. And I said, do you know how to use it? And I said, I never have before, but I'm supposed to try. <laughs> so she got almost around and she caught her toe on a tree 
route and fell flat of her face on the gravel driveway. Aww. Her nose was skinned up and bleeding. And, and I took her back in the house and patched her up a little bit. And she said, give me that rag. And she took that wet rag out there on her nose. And she was going after that groundhog. Well, when he saw us coming, he ran up in that pipe that went under the driveway. Uh-huh. And, you know, on the upper side, there was a, a metal grate that covered it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, I'm going to call Jimmy. So I called Jimmy and told him what was going on. So he came down there and he looked up in there and the groundhog was about halfway up the pipe. (laughs) This was a joke on Jimmy more than mama. So he said, I can't reach it. And I'm afraid to shoot up in there. I'm afraid to ricochet and come back and hit me. So he said, I'll just build a fire down here and smoke him out. Oh my God. Well, the wind was blowing that way and he built the fire at the bottom side of the pipe so the wind was blowing the smoke away oh my gosh it didn't do anything so he said i'll go get the air compressor and we'll blow the smoke up in there so we got the air compressor started trying to blow the smoke up in there and that didn't get him out so i said you just need a long pole and poke him well by that time toby was there and he had taken the grate off of the off the uh, pipe and had the trap sitting over it and so Jimmy said, I don't have a pole that long. I said, there's a long piece of PVC pipe laying up there next to the house. It wasn't quite long enough. So he said, I don't have any fittings, but if I had a fitting, I could put two together. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll heat one on the fire that I just built to smoke him out. So he heated this, but while he was heating it, the the groundhog decided to try to escape, and he came running out, and Jimmy was squatting down there next to that fire, and that groundhog got there, and Jimmy looked in, and they both went, ah! The groundhog (laughs) ran back in, and Jimmy flipped over on his back. He got up and heated the pipe and stuck the two together, poked it up in there, and got the groundhog to run up into the cage, and they trapped it. So he put it on the back of the four-wheeler. Now, Steve, you know, lived right up the road, and he had had five groundhogs just tearing his garden apart, and he'd killed all of those. So Jimmy put it on, the, and you know, Jimmy likes to play a prank on anybody. So he put it on the back of the four-wheel, and I said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, I'm going to take it up there and give it to Steve as a present. <laughs> he took the groundhog up there and said, Steve, I brought you something. Steve came out in the yard, saw that groundhog. He said, I thought you might need another groundhog. And he said, oh, and just went on back in the house. So I guess he eventually killed it. I don't know. Uh, because it was eating. It was just ruining mama's garden and you know how mama was about her garden yes that was her pride and joy mm-hmm. it was nobody could work in the garden and do it right but her so let me ask you something about diane uh-huh she had ovarian cancer which uh-huh. is why she died how did she not take care of that how did she not go to the doctor she did she went to the doctor. She had a knot on her belly mm-hmm. and she went to her gastro guy and she said i got this knot here he said, it's just a hernia it's just a hernia. And ovarian cancer cannot be detected with a, a pap smear. Mm-hmm. Yes, I knew that. And so uh, she finally, I don't remember exactly how they detected it finally, but by then it was already too far gone. I remember. And it, as it turns out, this, to, this knot in her belly that the doctor said was a hernia mm-hmm. turned out to be a cancer that had... Uh, grown there as a result of ovarian cancer and it had been two or three years since she asked him about it so if he had checked it the way a good doctor would have done Mm -hmm. he would have found it then and she probably would have survived it so she do you think she so she must have believed him when he said it was a hernia she did she Um, was furious with him when she found out because when she finally went in to have exploratory surgery the doctor came out and said well it's in the omentum which is that layer of fat around your belly it's there and it looks like it may be in some of her other organs as well and i said so what can you do and she said we'll try chemo but if that doesn't work there's nothing we can do for her yeah so the next she kept working right up until 
um, just a few weeks before she died. She was still going to work, even if she wasn't supposed to be on the job. She'd go in and get everybody's paperwork ready and, and make sure her job, the job for, were going the way they should. And uh, she was walking down the hall the, one afternoon, and that doctor came by her and poked that place in her belly and said, well, I guess it wasn't a hernia after all. Ugh. Just very flippant. What an evil guy. He was. Uh, and he's still practicing, I'm sure. I'm, I imagine he's retired by now. But the first time I saw him out in public having a good time, I had the urge to go and, and slap him down. That how dare he be out having fun when dying was dead because he, he was too bothered to to do a diagnosis. Yeah. He should have aspirated that place to see what it was. He should have. Or he should have, yeah, you could do a, a body scan to yeah. see what it is. Well, oh. He made no effort other than just to assume it was a hernia because she had had some uh, gastro bypass surgery mm-hmm. and she had some scarring tissue there. And he said, it's a hernia from when you had that that surgery. And, and left it there. So... She was furious. The nurses that worked on her floor said, we thought we were going to have to hold her back because I thought she was going to attack him. She was so angry with him. I'm sure. And rightfully so. Yeah. He but, took her uh, life, sort of. Yeah. He, he he cut years off of her life. And I still am kind of angry about it to this day because I really haven't traveled much since Diane died. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you haven't. I, have, uh, I, have, I haven't been on even uh, more than one or two weekend trips with my girlfriends mm-hmm. uh we still go to gatlinburg to the wildflower pilgrimage up until a covid hit but just to get out and go somewhere because she and i knew how to be mad at each other but knew how to get over it yeah and we could say whatever we wanted to say to each other and the other one would take offense and then get over it mm-hmm. and you don't find a travel partner that you can get along with like that because we fought yeah. like cats and dogs but we also loved each other dearly yes that's the truth um, you are very drastically different people. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it couldn't be more different and still be sisters. Like my two children are so different and sisters and close and not close at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating for me to watch because I don't have any experience yeah. of that, but I have two children that are similar to my two aunts and mm-hmm. that they're, and my two sisters-in-law, who are two very different women mm-hmm. and sisters, and similar and completely different at the same time. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And I, I'm curious what it must feel like to have lost that other, because in certain way, it feels like it's part of you, that Diane was part of you, mm-hmm. not just another person. Right. She was that, obviously. But- a part of you is missing mm-hmm. because she's gone. Mm-hmm. Is that how you feel? Yes. Yeah, that's how I would imagine you would feel. Um, um, but I did spend her last day with her. I know. That was special. And I did. I was there to hold her hand when she died. I know. That is special. And I was the same way with Granny. I was there to hold her hand when she died. I told Jimmy and Steve, I said, when you die, don't call me because I don't <laughs> want to hold any more hands. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's a brave, brave thing to be able to sit in that feeling. And it's because it's so painful mm-hmm. to lose someone you love and to watch. I mean, I've never watched anybody slip away, but I have said goodbye. You know, I said goodbye to Granny. Mm-hmm. I was able to say goodbye to her and have many regrets for what I didn't get to say. She, mm-hmm. I don't even know if she could hear me, but it's awfully hard to be in those feelings. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, 
you wouldn't have been anywhere else. I wouldn't. No. In fact, we had a family reunion that Sunday, and and uh, she had cooked. And then when it was time to go that Sunday afternoon, she said, I just don't feel like going. I think I'll stay home. You just take my food with you. So I took it, and I went back to her house to take her dishes to her. And um, we watched. She loved girls softball on TV, those tournaments. And so we watched girls softball. And uh, she said, I think I'll go to bed. And during the middle of the night, she woke up and she fell going to the bathroom. Mm. And I couldn't get her back up. So we laid on the floor under a quilt and slept together on the floor until she could get up and get back on the bed. And the next morning, Granny came and said, how is she? And I said, well, she's sleeping really well right now. And I said, we can go in and visit with her if you want to. She said, no, I don't want to wake her up. And I went back in there about an hour later, and she was gasping for breath because it had moved into her lungs. Yeah. So I I went to the hospital and spent the rest of the time in the emergency room with her. Yeah. And I gave her permission to die. Yeah. I told her she didn't need to suffer like that. So I gave her permission to die, and then she took a couple of breaths, and she was gone. Bless her heart. I don't think she was suffering at that point because they had given her enough, but she told them no medication, no no machines, nothing. DNR. And they came in and the anesthesiologist or the whoever he was came in and said, well, we need to get her hooked up to a machine. And I said, no. And he said, well, I don't have her paperwork saying that she did not want any of that. And I said, I sent it with the ambulance attendant. Someone here has it. And I said, I'll fight you before you put her on one of those machines because that was the last thing she asked of me. Yeah. And so... About that time, the doctor came in and said, yeah, I got the papers right here. She doesn't want to be on put on machines. So he started putting a breathing tube in her nose. And I said, no machines. And he said, this is just to give her some oxygen to make it easier to breathe. No machines. So she took about three or four breaths and then she was gone. Bless her heart. Oh, well, you shouldn't have asked me that. <laughs> Why? What's <laughs> that? I can't control it when it comes to dying. <laughs> it's okay. I know. But you are, um, I guarantee you there's people listening that have had very same similar experience. It's got to be so hard um, and heartbreaking. And it's, I think it's a heartbreak that never heals. It is. You can never heal. My daddy still talks about missing her so much. Mm-hmm. And of course he misses her, of course. But that he talks about it is mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. because... He didn't talk about that stuff much. Men are a little different. Yeah. But he said she would show up and put a box of Whoppers on his desk, and he wouldn't even know she'd been there. Mm-hmm. And the Whoppers stopped coming, you know. And that was the difference between one of the differences. I never thought about doing things like that for people. Yeah. You know, if it was a birthday, fine. If not, <laughs> I didn't think about it. Yeah. But he, he was very good. Jimmy's very good to all of us, you know. Yeah. Uh, he would work on our cars. Back when we had no money, yeah. and he wouldn't charge us anything. We'd insist on giving him something, but I knew he never charged us what he should. Yeah. But he was so funny. Diane came in one day, and he said uh, he heard her drive by, and he called her and said, come by the shop. And he said, I heard you go by. Your back right tire is slack. <laughs> <laughs> Just from hearing it. <laughs> she said, how'd you know that? And he said, I heard you go down the road. <laughs> and it was. He had to pump up her tire. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so. Oh, that's the mechanic. And he can't quit being a mechanic. No, no matter what. A doer for sure. But Well, thank you for sharing all that with me. Um, Believe it or not, I'll get some emails saying I'm so glad you told that story. Because I feel that way, too, about my sister, brother, husband, wife, child. Death is a difficult thing to process. Difficult 
when it's too early, I mm-hmm. think even harder than my mm-hmm. granny or pop were yeah. older. They'd had wonderful lives. And, and I was ready for granny to go because she'd laid in there in that bed. And I knew she was never going to get better. And no. the doctors told her that. And it was as soon as he told her she would never regain her function that she started going downhill. She she was determined to die. Just I took think her 10 so. days. I think she starved herself to death. Well, that or the nursing home no, starved to death because they would bring her food tray in and set it over next to the window, and she was paralyzed. <laughs> Nobody was staying there to help feed her, so I stayed for every meal. Oh. If if Jimmy and them weren't able to be there, I stayed for three meals a day yeah. and tried to feed her. And then they came in and said, she, she can't swallow. You don't need to be feeding her. And I said, but she was supposed to be on a liquid diet, and they brought her a hamburger and baked beans the first day. Oh, my gosh. I said, she can't eat this. She's supposed to be on a liquefied diet. And they said, well, you can just mash up the baked beans. Uh, but that's not liquid it's either. It's not liquid either. Even mashed baked beans is not liquid. Liquid is chicken so broth. They, did, they didn't follow any of the instructions about uh, uh, uh I have a real hard time allowing them to stay in business and not, not, not go into the Medicare and the Medicaid people about the treatment at that nursing home. Oh, that's awful. So. That's awful. Yeah. I hate that somebody else's mother may be in there being treated the way my mother was. And I, and Jimmy just point blank, point blank told him, I know my mother's going to die, but I think y'all made it come a lot sooner because yeah. your lack of care. Yeah. No. Yeah. Something needs to be done about the nursing care industry. But where we had my mother-in-law was wonderful. Oh you know, yeah, there are good ones out there. Of course, yeah, that's that's true. I think of almost. But the one my mother in law was at was a privately owned one, mm. and the one Mama was at is nationwide. Right, it's all about the dollar. Yes, that's true of the medical profession in general these days. Mm-hmm. I think it's all about the dollar. Mm-hmm. What can the insurance company pay me back for? Mm-hmm. And other than that, we're not interested. I think that's been my experience dealing with my health since COVID. Is that my doctors just kind of went? I don't know. And I had to find a doctor who I paid out of pocket privately who said, I know this is what's happening and it can be treated. And I was like, I went to all these people and uh, I heard someone privately at a party speaking about her husband, who is a doctor who is um, 51 and ready to quit because he can't effectively mm-hmm. care for patients well, because they are told his hands how many are people tied. they have to see per hour. They are told that. It doesn't that, matter yes. how much time a person needs. But I have to say my cardiologist will spend all day with me. He doesn't care about that. Uh, but we spend most of the time talking about plants. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he docks at his private time. So then let's talk about plants. This is a perfect segue. Um, we've been talking. Do you know we've been talking for an hour and a half? <laughs> so... You belong, or you belong to, or do you run the Native Plant Society? I am a member of the Georgia Native Plant Society, and we have a chapter called the West Georgia Chapter. Okay. And the chapter does a restoration project, and our project is a 40-acre nature trail that has been allowed to be overrun with non-native privet and honeysuckle and stuff like that. So we're required as a chapter of the Georgia State Native Plant Society to restore an area. And so we chose that 40 acres. And so we've been pulling out privet for seven years. Jeez. And we've been. <sighs> that take, makes me stressed out. Seven take, years you've been pulling out privet? Uh, but oh. we only work one day a week. 
okay. uh, every Tuesday morning. So I missed my work day today. Oh, sorry. And I already got two emails about why aren't you here? Oh, sorry, Native <laughs> Plants okay. Society, West Georgia. <laughs> uh, I needed a break from it. I've been doing it every every Tuesday for almost two years now. And then sometimes we'll have called work days. Our, some of our uh, corporate people in town will give us workers. They give them uh, four hours off from work and they get paid to come and do That's volunteer nice. work. So um, we can have as few as three or four come. And one day we had like 15 or 20 who came from the same company. They come once a year and spend a half a day with us. So, But we're pulling out the privet. And every time we pull out privet from an area, we raise money to buy plants to um, plant native things back in there. So right now we're working on a bird sanctuary. Mm -hmm. We've been put on the Audubon e-hotspot. So you can go on the Audubon uh, bird watchers site. And I think it's called audubon ebird or something like that and and find our address and you can find a list of all the birds that have been identified down there so far that's cool so we had the audubon people come and walk the trail and then oh i guess maybe a quarter mile to a half mile of the trail he found 20 different species of birds there so wow that's pretty neat so what we're we put up bird houses for the ones that we know were there and our sanctuary um is a small maybe a half acre plot and frank bennett is our go get, go to guy for the privet pullers. He's a little old guy, little old guy, but he can pull that privet. So he's cleared <laughs> the privet, and they, and we're going in there now and pulling up the baby privet because the birds scatter the seeds. And we've just recently bought about the five or six hundred dollars worth of native shrubs and uh, understory trees that will flower for the pollinators in the spring, and then provide berries for the birds in the fall and winter. Mm-hmm. And that pulls the birds in. And we've cleared an area and put in a pollinator garden so people can come and see all the butterflies and all the insects that depend on flowers. And mm. they most of them have to have wild have to have native wildflowers for their larval stage. So uh, you can have all the flowers in your yard and grow all the butterflies and things you want to there, but they won't ever lay eggs in your in your yard and make make uh, caterpillars if you don't have the right plant from because they cannot physically digest non-native leaves Interesting. their bodies have co-evolved with our native plants and they um have to have native plants to eat in their larval station now they can eat berries off the birds and and the and uh, critters like that can eat berries off of non-natives but uh they have to have insects for their babies mm. because a, a nest with say three or four babies in it can can have to feed between six and nine thousand worms and caterpillars and beetle and and grasshoppers to get those babies out of the nest. That's a lot. So if you've got a, a yard full of butterflies, they may catch your butterflies, but that's not as nutritious as the larvae. Mm. So you have to have the native plants because the, almost every larvae has to have a native leaf to eat in order mm. to survive. And the oak tree is the most important. hosts 535 species of, of uh, moths and butterflies, and they all lay their eggs on the oak trees. So if you've got oak trees, you're going to have a yard full of of birds and so it's kind of a cycle you know if you don't have the if you don't have the caterpillars you won't have the birds if you don't have the birds then the caterpillars multiply exponentially and you get too many caterpillars and they damage your plants then when you get too many so you have to have that nice circle of life it's a balance it is it's a balance of nature it's a little ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Every little place is. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen the movie called the The Biggest Little Farm? Mm-mm. It's a documentary. Maybe we'll watch it tonight. It's such a great documentary. It's about a couple in L.A. who 
just decided they wanted to learn how to be farmers. And they found a guy who mentored them to teach them about the ecosystem of a farm and to have a farm that that was an ecosystem, not just a single crop farm, but a farm that had crops and critters that helped each other grow. And he Mm -hmm. told them how long it would take for that farm to fully function and some of the problems that would happen. And it's fascinating because it looks like the first two or three years were terrible. But once they got it up and running, it's beautiful. And it functions like clockwork. But getting all those species of animal, bug, bird to kind of do the dance together took took some years. Mm-hmm. It's not overnight. I mean, we have a million monarchs in my backyard because I um, made sure I planted a bunch of uh, milkweed. Mm-hmm. And my gardener here, lucky for me, Lisa, who's been a guest on here before, knew enough to know I need pollinators, I need milkweed, and I need these trees. She knew what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So my backyard is full of animals all the time. Mm -hmm. I had someone come over the other day. Whitney Cummings is another, um, is a friend of ours. She's a a comedian. She came over and she went, how do you get all these butterflies in your backyard? And I was like, first of all, it's not magic. You call my friend Lisa and Lisa will do it for you. But it's the milkweed and the butterfly bush. And this uh, uh, protocarpus tree and the, with the melaleuca tree, all the birds live in that melaleuca. I mean, they live in it. It's kind of like a big bush because uh, I don't have an oak tree, but they love that melaleuca. Mm-hmm. So they stay in that tree and you can just, uh, they feed my bird feeder and I have a, I have a uh, what do you call it? The thing with the water in it for birds, bird bath, I have a bird bath and they just all live in that little bitty ecosystem. If you're going to have a yard with with the, uh, that kind of yard, there's shelter, mm. food, water. Mm. That's it. Uh, for butterflies, you may want a puddling place because they like to puddle mm. because they go to a wet place in the ground. And they when they puddle there and get get water, they're also getting the, the minerals that are mm. in the soil. You can make your own puddling, just a saucer, fill it full of some cow manure. You know, mm. composted cow manure puts water in there. They get the nutrients from it. Mm. You don't have to do a, a fancy thing. Right. Uh, and they need, of course, their food. And if you, you can look what, if you discern, like I have tons of gulf fritillary butterflies in my yard because I grew maypop. Uh-huh. And that's the only plant they can eat. Uh-huh. The caterpillars can't eat anything but, maypop, but uh, um, passion vine. Mm-hmm. And so I farm those out to kids at church and let them borrow my grow intense and I give them the, the vines and I give them caterpillars and they watch them go from caterpillars to butterflies mm-hmm. or to, to chrysalis to butterflies. And then they let them go. Mm-hmm. And I do at least one or two kids doing that every year. Just, and they're so thrilled and enthused by it. Yes, it's the but most amazing. I have people in my na- my neighborhood, my little 94 year old neighbor saw me in town the other day. He said, aren't you one of my neighbors? And I said, yeah. And he said, what house you live in? And I said, three houses back from yours. And he said, oh, you're the one with the jungle in your front yard. And I said, yes. And I love my jungle because I've almost completely converted my yard to native plants. Uh-huh. And I have owls and hawks and, and titmice and sparrows and wrens and cardinals and robins and just an amazing variety of birds just in my little acre of property there and uh then i have the i have 
choke berries and and sugar berries and uh, service berries and choke and uh, winter berries and all kinds of shrubs that provide the berries for the birds. And then I have nesting boxes and roosting boxes, and I don't I don't rake my leaves ever because mm-hmm. many many of the butterflies that make a chrysalis towards the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. They crawl off under the leaves to make their chrysalis. And when you rake up your leaves and throw your leaves away, you may be throwing away your butterfly chrysalis. Oh, no. Yeah. So my yard's pretty natural. I have walking paths through there. I had a little old man and woman down the street who came by regularly. I haven't seen them in a long time, and I didn't know their name. They lived in the street over. But they said, we always walk down here to see your yard because you always have something blooming. And she said, I hope you don't mind, but we do walk through your yard sometimes. And I said, no, you notice I have signs by all my plants. I want people to know what these plants are. Yeah. If you see an insect, a butterfly on a plant, you want to know what but plant attracted that butterfly, you can read the sign. And she said, I always put bags with a drawstring over my seed pods. And that way, when the seed pods explode, I can catch my seeds, and then I can grow more. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I just let them go on the ground and grow where they want to. But sometimes I want to grow some so I can put them in specific places. And she said, after we talked about the walking trails and everything, she said, I do have a question, though. And I said, what? And she said, why do you put socks on your plants? <laughs> it was my seed bags. And I told her, and she said, well, that's brilliant. She said, you know, we walk down here just to visit this yard. Aww. And I have a lot of people who say that. We walk this way every day just because we know there's something blooming down here. So now when I thin my plants, I put a little blue kitty swimming pool out by the driveway, and I just dump them in there. Uh-huh. And I go on Facebook and say, free plants in the kitty pool. And everybody comes and just, I don't, I may not be there. I may be in the backyard working. I never know who takes those plants. I don't know how far the plants have scattered but uh i had two pools full of red black-eyed susan and and uh, lilies towed it off last the week before i came out here that's great so why do you enjoy it what is it about it that you enjoy well i think it's in the genes because you know mama was such a gardener Mm -hmm. and i started gardening with her i grew my first plant when i was in third grade oh wow i planted a pumpkin seed in my milk carton at school and we had never grown pumpkins but mama let me have some of her garden space to plant my pumpkin and i grew a great big pumpkin on that oh how great i don't don't know what she did with it because i'm sure she didn't cook it but (laughs) uh it makes a good bird feeder. You just cut it. And when you finish with your Halloween pumpkin, you just throw it off in the woods and the birds will come and eat all the seeds and the other animals will eat the pulp of the pumpkin and it makes a good bird feeder. So uh, that kind of set me on fire. And I didn't garden. Well, in fact, when we lived in Atlanta, I dug up a trench around our patio in that really nice apartment and planted okra. You did? <laughs> so we could have some fresh okra because we didn't get home all the time to get okra. We had to move off right when my okra started we moved back to Carrollton just as my okra started producing. So I'm sure Aww. they came in and took my okra out and put their sod back down. I'm sure they did. <laughs> but I, I first got involved with the night. Well, I joined Master Gardeners, and I did that for about 10 years. But I just didn't enjoy it as much as I did when I first went in. It didn't seem that we gardened as much as we did when I first joined Master Gardeners. It mm-hmm. it, uh, it became more meetings and, and dinners and things like that. And I, I wanted to be gardening. So a friend of mine... Um, said, why don't you come to a native plant meeting? And I went and I got hooked. And so I've served in several capacities on the board and vice president one year, but I don't want to be an officer. I don't want to be one of the worker bees. So I took on the job of coordinating the nature trail work. Mm -hmm. So I line up the workers and I plan the work days and I buy all the plants and, and make all the plans of where the plants are going to go. And then we go down on Tuesdays and plant them. But uh, there in my own yard, I work 10 hours a day, a lot of days, just Taking care of my plants. So why don't you have chickens? What is the holdup? His name is Scott Height. (laughs) 
No, well, but why he doesn't says, he want chickens? You travel so much, which I don't anymore. He said, you travel so much, and I don't want to take care of chickens. I said, you wouldn't have to take care of chickens. You can get an automatic feeder, feed dispenser. You can get an automatic dripper, and you don't have to do anything with them. They're the easiest animal I've ever had. And I would love to have chickens. I loved my chickens. I miss them terribly. I don't think I got bit by the green thumb. I don't have any interest in gardening. But the animal part... I would love to have goats. I would love to have some more chickens. I loved my chickens. I, and obviously, I have six pets. So the, that animal piece of our our childhood, not that I, we had childhood at the same time. That sounds weird. But my childhood, which was sort of like yours, is that I just love all these farm animals. I um, had a pet pig when I was a little girl. Yes. Uh, we had the runt of the litter, and Daddy gave me the runt. And we had a dog pen that was not didn't have a dog in it at the time. And the pig slept in a bed in the dog house and roamed around in the dog pen. And and uh, I raised that pig in the dog pen. I, Daddy said it's too big for the dog pen. And I thought he sold it. But I found out later we ate it for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. But, you know, growing up on a farm, you expect that kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's how it works. Yeah. That's You don't grow them for fun on a farm. You grow them for for survival. Yes, you grow them to eat. I mean, you grow them for other people to eat. But I didn't do a whole lot of gardening. Well, when we lived in our rental house in Carrollton, I gardened in the backyard with a flower garden, Mm -hmm. planted a lot of bulbs. But I didn't really start doing vegetable gardening and just all-out gardening until I joined the Native Plant Society, I guess. Uh, Really? Well, I was already doing my vegetable garden, but getting into the native plants and realizing how important it is for the ecosystems. And you can have many, many, many different habitats in your your own yard, Mm -hmm. microclimates, micro uh, whatever they call them. I can't remember the name of them. But, you know, I've got sunny areas. I've got shady areas. I've got things that get morning sun, things that get only afternoon sun. I've got uh, dry woods. I've got places where I have rain gardens from the water that runs off the house. So I've got a lot of micro uh, cosms in my yard, microsystems, where I can grow plants that need the shade and the moisture. I can grow plants in my sunny bog, bog garden that needs sun and water. I've got a vegetable garden in the sun. I've got a pollinator garden in the sun. And I've got tons of native wildflowers that grow in the spring, and they bloom early in the spring before the leaves come out on the trees. And then mm-hmm. when the leaves come out, they die back to the ground and other things start coming mm-hmm. up. So I have something blooming in my yard every month except December. That's in Georgia. amazing. In Georgia, <laughs> in yeah. Georgia. That's the thing. Yeah. In Georgia, that's amazing. It's amazing. You know, I planted this rose garden because I remember that Granny always had roses. Diane, too. She could grow any kind of rose. Could she? Oh, man. I don't she, remember Diane having roses. She had them right along the edge of her house, right, but right along that. Uh, wall adjacent to the driveway. I don't remember that, but Granny, I did always remember. And roses are hard to grow in Georgia. Mm-hmm. They're very hard to grow, they aren't are. they? Even the knockout roses that are supposed to be resistant to black spot, they get black spot in Georgia now. They do? Yeah. It's just too humid. Yeah. I don't want to do anything that labor intensive. Yeah. But I've got to constantly be worried about them and checking on them all the time. Well, my daughter loves pruning roses. That's wonderful. She loves it. She'll go out and prune my whole rose garden. So the front of the house, I don't think I've shown you this, but the very front of the house, I have a little table and chairs, and that whole garden is hydrangea. That's my Diane garden. Uh Uh-huh. Leslie has a Diane garden, That's my Diane garden. She got some hydrangeas from Diane's yard, and she also got one of the hydrangeas from her funeral. She did? Yeah. 
Well, I had to buy mine at the local plant store because I'm too far away. Well, you can't but, bring them into California anyway. No, I know, so. but it's beautiful. Uh-huh. Every time I go in there, I go, oh, it's my little Diane garden. And then I my rose garden is my little Willamay garden because I just don't, I don't, I don't have any interest in growing vegetables. It's too much everyday work that I don't want to do. So the roses are all on a drip line. Isla loves to, to keep them pruned. <laughs> I don't do anything but just cut them and put them in a vase. What are you going to do with that rose garden two years from now when she goes no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'll have enough free time. I can prune it myself, I, I guess. I'm going to be driving to and from school. Well, we should wrap it up. We've been talking for almost two hours. I but know. how did it go? Fine. Fine? Fine. You okay with it? You know, it? I told you I don't have a problem talking. I know. Well, I know we never have a problem having conversations ever. And uh, Jimmy Kemp chickened out, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, I was really shocked he did it the first time. Yeah, I was too. Really shocked. He was super nervous. He does nervous. not like to be the limelight. No, he does not. He was so nervous. But we had such a great conversation. I wanted the two of you to talk together, but that's okay. If he's not comfortable, that's okay. Well, I don't know if we could have a conversation together because he mumbled so much and I can't understand him and he's deaf and he can't understand <laughs> me. So. <laughs> So this was perfect. Yeah. Well, let me say this. I love you very much. I love you too. I feel so lucky to have you. And I know, like I said earlier, I didn't get close to you till we were adults. But my goodness, it's so important that I have you. And I know we don't talk that often. We don't call each other. You're always in the yard. I'm always in the road. But you're always in my heart, though. The same. Always. So... Thank you for taking me into your heart because you're my aunt. And as my elder, I had to take it from you. You know what I mean? You take the lead. I just can't believe I never taught you to sew. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Miss Edmondson taught me to sew and I hated it. So, so, you know, when I took my first home ec class, my Miss Edmondson was out pregnant and our teacher slept a lot during class. (laughs) (laughs) And she, found out I'd been sewing since I was 10 and I was in eighth grade and I'd already made my first wool lined winter coat. Oh my gosh. And so she asked me to teach the girls how to use the sewing machine. So I taught some sewing when I was in eighth grade. Well, you taught Isla how to sew. Yeah. I would rather, I think, stab myself in the eye with that needle than sew. (laughs) I hate sewing so much that um, I just avoid it like the plague. So I'd rather you teach me something else. <laughs> You've taught me so much already. I feel like in so many ways, you know, I think I've maybe said this to you before, because I did not have a typical mother, I had a lot of women who were, I watched for how to be a mother. I watched Phyllis. I watched you. I watched Becky's mother, Margie. Jan was actually a great mother to me in a lot of ways. And I think when it came time for me to be a mother, I took chapters from each of these women that I thought worked. And I definitely took the Girl Scout chapter from you and the way that you were involved with your kids, but they also had their own life. Because you always, for me, watching you with kids that were 10 years younger than me, you always had, when you came to the lake, they brought friends with them. And then they were on their own. Mm -hmm. So you were never on top of them. You never micromanaged them. But you made sure that they were doing something and that they were enjoying themselves. And I think I I don't think I consciously went, I'm going to do that like Carol. But I think I subconsciously took that chapter from watching you and made it my own. Well, thank you for telling me that. Well, I I really do think I did that. I, I think the way that I talked to my kids I took from Jan 
because of the way Jan talked to me. She was always talked to me like an adult in a very honest and non-agenda way. Here's the facts, how we handle it. Jan always dealt with me and daddy dealt with me that way a lot. But for, and you know, Phyllis, I don't know what I took from Phyllis, <laughs> but except that she, I always knew she loved me. Right, right. I never, ever thought I was unwelcome or unwanted at her house. And I spent so much time at her house. I would be like, could you take your kid home, please? You know, <laughs> but I never felt that way. I felt like I was her third kid. And um, just being loved I just all the time from Phyllis. And Phyllis wasn't a loving parent, but I knew she loved me. Right. Um, that, that's, I mean, Granny wasn't loving, but I no, never knew. I never thought she didn't love me exactly. ever. So, um, but yeah, I think I took a lot of my parenting, that kind of boots on the ground parenting from watching you parent your children. Well, thank you. So no, thank you. <laughs> because my example was not the greatest. You know, I don't remember mom and daddy, either one, either one ever saying, I love you. No, but I didn't need them to say it. Yeah. I forced them to say it to me. <laughs> I would say, I love you. And then stare at them. And then granny would look off and go, I love you too. <laughs> she would look at me, but she would say it. Very uncomfortable with, with, <laughs> with showing their emotions. Just yes. like I am sometimes, but, uh, you, when you have a parent who loves you, you don't have to be told. That's true. I always knew it. It is nice to hear, but you don't have it to be told. It is nice to hear. And, you know, my mother told me she loved me all the time, and she did the best she could. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, she absolutely loved me the best she could, and I I really do mean that. She did the best she could. She just was woke, working with a she didn't have much bunch of, of broken tools. <laughs> she didn't have a background for being no much of a mother she had a toolbox that had all broken pieces in yeah. it and she just i have half a wrench and two-thirds of a screwdriver can we make it work she tried <laughs> but yeah i didn't need to hear it i did i don't think i told phyllis i love you when i was a kid ever i don't think i told granny pop that either as a kid but my daddy told me he loved me all the time and so i think once i got to be an adult i was like well that's just how it works i'm just going to tell you and then, yeah, Granny would always turn her head and go, I love you, too. <laughs> she was very, that, that's the bashfulness yeah. again. Timid. Uh, she and I had a good relationship. Uh, you know, we I was stuck to Daddy's hip when we were little. Mm -hmm. He'd come home in the afternoon, and I hit the barn with him, and I helped him milk the cow and feed the cow and tromp the fields with him. And uh, Mama didn't want you to tromp around with her she wanted you to stay out of her garden and stay out of her mess and go back go play stay out of her way <laughs> you know her philosophy was feed them breakfast open the door say go play uh, yes. feed them lunch open the door say go play yeah. feed them supper say open the door and say go play and then at seven o'clock when papa kemp went to bed we had to come inside and quit playing <laughs> <laughs> it's too loud right well thank you for sharing all this i really appreciate it well it was probably more than you wanted to hear no it was not <laughs> we could talk for two more hours oh, we could uh, completely yeah you don't have anybody there to pull at you i uh, know right well thank you i love you carol i love you too <laughs> I think that we should